How was the trip to Ipsy? It was good, man. Smooth ride. Did you take the back roads? No, I came out uh, 94. 94. I'm right off where I live at in Taylor. I'm right off 94 oh, yeah, freeway. That's right. You got to take uh, <coughs> Prospect to 14 to 96, bro, sometime. That's a nice, quiet ride at nighttime. I got you, but that'd be out the way for me, though. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm literally, like, when I say right off 94, I'm like right off 94. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. My brother. I'm Rob Wallace, and this is the Zero Noise Podcast, where we engage in progressive discussions about music, life, and everything in between with our guests. The Zero Noise Podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, Leon Speakers, provides high-end audio solutions crafted to your specifications and desires. Leon Speakers is committed to supporting the authentic voices of artists and music artisans alike as a sponsor of the Amplify Fellowship. For more information about Leon Speakers, visit leonspeakers.com. As complex as our world may seem, Leon promises to bring the music to more people and more spaces and always do it with style. This podcast is also brought to you by Grove Studios. That's where we at. 24-7 artists and production workspace. Whether rehearsing for our next, excuse me, whether rehearsing for your next show, producing a new song, doing a podcast or shooting a video, Grove Studios is set up for the independent creator. Right now, Grove, Grove is offering subscriptions that can help you get your project or next creation cracking. To learn more, visit GroveStudios.space. This podcast is produced by Project Plugin, Mind State Marketing. We got Max behind the boards. And share with all streaming platforms through Captivate. So, I'm Rob Wallace. I'm an educator and what I call a musical anthropologist. <laughs> through my study, I live music and hip hop. Specific, you laugh too hard at that. Through my study, I live music and hip hop specifically as both the subtext and a product of American culture, a medium of liberation, and a soundtrack for the search of freedom, collectively and individually. I regard the hip hop album. As a primary source of critical discourse about life in America by those who create it. Therefore, we will not only discuss albums that are commonly regarded as classics or close to classics, classics, I want to know about the music that changed the way our guests thought. And that may not be something that everybody liked. Yes. Along the way, we'll explore how music speaks to who we are and who we desire to be. So art is not valuable if it doesn't challenge, if it doesn't ask, and if it does not respond. We acknowledge that music decorates time as art decorates space. I ask dope people to come talk to me. They talk about who they are, who they've been, and what they do. I ask them to be ready to discuss an album that played a role in them becoming them. You obviously won't hear the music here for many reasons, but you will never hear it the same afterwards. Gotcha. Therefore, this is a music podcast, but it is a people's podcast. And today, the person... Is Brandon Scarborough. What up, though? What up, though? And the album is Ready to Die. Yes, sir. By Notorious B.I.G., <clears throat> Sean Puffy Combs, Easy Moby, Mr. C., and many, many others. Facts. Welcome to Brandon Scarborough. Welcome. What up, though? So, I got to go back and talk about when we first met. Mm -hmm. No doubt. When I was a, an administrator at a high school, shout out to River Rouge High School. Brandon came for a college event, yep. I believe. Yep, first time, yep. A college fair. And Brandon was there in his other life. Mm -hmm. And me and him struck up a conversation 
And out of the blue, we at this college fair and we start talking about Supreme clientele. Yeah. <laughs> and I started to share with you that we had developed a music production program mm-hmm. at the high school. Shout out to Travis Bean. Salute. Called Ramp, River Rouge Audio and Music Production. Facts. And after that, we started talking pretty regularly. Yes, sir. You advised me on some stuff. Mm-hmm. You helped me to develop my own business. Mm-hmm. And the word, like I said, when we talked, because you recently did a workshop with us too, that's going to be coming out at the end of the month. Correct. The word that I always think about when I think about you is solid. Appreciate it. So, but let me ask you, <clears throat> who is Brandon Scarver? Just do it out here trying to function, man. What's that mean? Fun- like function? What, what do you mean? I mean, just live. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm a humble guy. Uh, I believe uh, a lot of times we design to to be vain by nature. Just growing up in Detroit with the whole boss up mentality. You know, get money by any means. You know, I'm definitely from that cloth and that upbringing. But just as I morphed more <clears throat> as a young man and eventually becoming a man of my own standing, um, just trying to function, make sure my family good. You know what I'm saying? Make sure I'm good. Make sure, you know, life is cool. You know, we've been surviving a long time in the Scarborough history and legacy and lifestyle and family. So I think it's just time for us to all start living more. And really get into the living aspect of living life versus just surviving life. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I mean by trying to function. Do you feel like at this point in your life you're surviving or you're living? I believe I'm trying to balance it out. It's definitely still survival, I would say, at a large percentage. But I'm I'm definitely trying to balance out with the living. Definitely trying to balance it out. So you've lived... You've had an interesting professional experience that has spanned the boardroom to what I call the 2 a.m. conversations with the promoter. Facts. In the gutter spots. Facts. So you kind of, you what sometimes I talk about, when I talk to, to the young people who I work with, I talk about the fact that there is value in having awareness of the situations that they grow up in. Like you you don't lose hood awareness by going to college. No. You don't lose hood awareness by getting a, a, a great job no. where you're making plenty of money. And you've transcended again. You're a degree brother. Mm-hmm. You spent time on college campus not only one college I mean not only a college campus for your own education but you supported others in getting there as well yes but again you've also been in the world of music which isn't always a pretty place yes what have you found when I go back to that term calling you solid what have you found has allowed you to be the same person all the time because that's not always the case Everybody can't do that. But I can say that you are, your literacy about situations kind of, you, you're consistent across, across the board in, in terms of what I see. Yeah. How is that? I mean, it's just my values and 
my core and the fibers that, you know, I was raised on. Um, I'm a 90s baby. You know, I was born in the 80s, but I'm a 90s baby Detroit. So we talking post-crack hitting. We talking the remnants of projects. We talking about, you know, abandoned storefronts. We talking about the aftermath, you know, what the, the crack epidemic did to the city. You know, that's the era of Detroit I grew up in. So, you know, it was still childhood memories. It was still family cookouts. It was still block parties. But it was also the street element was real. You know, uh, being inside before the street lights came on was still the real thing. And just the allure of fast money and the allure of, um, you know, being successful by not doing a nine to five. All that was still real coming up. And so the path that I was on as a young man and everybody in my family, everybody that grew up in my neighborhood, um, that's what people were doing. Like, I didn't have too many people that lived on my block that was nine to five or working at the plant. You know, most people was either on the system as far as welfare and government benefits or they was hustling, you know, and even in my family, it was a lot of that. So the few positive images I did get came from being a student athlete, playing basketball, being around my coaches, you know, having to stay eligible in school and teachers motivating you to do well in the classroom and, you know, career day when people come into the school talking about different careers. That's where my exposure came, you know, to stuff different. You know what I'm saying? But other than that, my my home environment, what I seen, you know, was just the regular stuff, you know, that people deal with in any urban area. So that's where that come from. So it's just, you know, things like when you shake a man's hand, look him in the eye. You know what I'm saying? Keeping your word, you know, honoring your parents, honoring your grandparents, making sure your seed's straight, you know what I'm saying? Not shitting where you rest at, you know, all those good old morals and ethics, you know, just struck with me, you know what I'm saying? And I had to learn pretty much as an athlete and learn in college how to develop those soft skills, dress for success, things like that. And it kind of came with reluctance because I felt like I was selling out at different points when I was in college and, you know, when I went away to school to play ball, but, you know, it became an acquired taste. So I just tried to formulate a common ground as a career professional in between. Like, you know, I could still be me and still get the message across and do the job without necessarily sacrificing what I felt was my integrity. Right. Now, but, but you were pretty, even though, you know, you, you came up a certain way. You were you were pretty astute in school, though. You did you handled your business in school. I was fortunate. I mean, I wasn't. I wouldn't say I was the most studious student. Okay. The truancy officer would say different. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I was just a kid that that had good memorization skills. There you, know, you go. Some some you could teach me some once. And right. I lock it in. And when I applied myself, that was always the the the, the common comment in the detention office and sitting in the principal's office and a few times my mom was able to make it to parent teacher conferences that Brandon just gotta apply itself. Right. Once he applies itself, you know, he can pretty much write his ticket. But right. for whatever reason he's not applying himself. He's easily distracted, class clown, always getting in fights, you know, acting out. And that was just, you know, like any kid, you know, that was my way of looking for attention because I wasn't getting it at home. You know what I'm saying? Well mom's working all the time. You know, different dudes and out the crib that she might have been dating because my biological father was never in the picture. So, never. It was just me and moms. You okay. know what I'm saying? Until my sister came along. So, it was like I had to be the man in the house early. 
So so being <clears throat> both of us, you know, having our hands still sticking our hands down in the in the in in K twelve education to a degree, mm-hmm. we both realized that the most successful school successful students in a lot of urban schools are students that have a lot of charisma. Students that have relatively good language skills, because most of school is is based around linguistic intelligence, and they have good social awareness. You know, those are typically the kids that are successful. Um, and so, can you talk about like in terms of understanding that part of the game? What are you giving to seeing as though you saw both sides? What is your messaging? to young people about the fact that they can maintain their integrity but still operate in a different place that can get them somewhere different just I guess instilling the the conscious capitalism even if that's a real phrase or not um, I think you just coined that <laughs> or, I've heard it before so I ain't gonna okay. say I coined it but um, just that you know Society is what it is. You know, the rules is not necessarily going to change anytime soon. They may bend a little here and there, but we live, you know, in a very capitalistic society. And at the end of the day, financial freedom for most is their only hope. And so how you get there, there's several different ways to get there. Mm -hmm. So what I try to tell students, you know, education is the number one equalizer because it's the one thing that no matter where you come from, if you do become educated and you do learn a skill, you do learn a trade or whatever you can to further yourself, it immediately puts you in the space of being able to chart your own course as far as other opportunities to monetize things, right. to be able to take care of yourself. So I try to get them to look at, you know, their K through 12 or post-secondary or like I said, trade or if they go in the military or if they start their own business, I try to get them to view just education in general like that. Like this is just as a means kind of to an end like it's not an end all be all right it's a tool to help you it's a stepping stone and i found in kicking it with students like that or just kicking it with young ladies and young men that way it's different than kind of coming with the same song and dance of you know you got to do it this way you got to do it that way right you know put on the shirt and tie talk proper you know what i'm saying all those things because that stuff that was passed down down through generations you know for us Mm-hmm. And clearly this newer generation is showing us that with the internet way of doing things and the microwave mentality of success, that those rules don't necessarily apply for them in this current landscape in which they're dealing with. So we're just trying to get them to understand that, you know, you could be who you are, you could be creative, you could be innovative, but at the end of the day, you want to put yourself in a position to get as much financial freedom as possible because that's really the only way that you can kind of navigate the madness that goes on out here in the society that we live in. Okay. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the other things you're involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody wants to pull up your resume, I mean, radio, event planning, event promotion, mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think was your favorite thing to do? Because you wear a lot of hats now. Mm-hmm. But what part of all that was like your favorite thing to do? Well, it's always been creating. Um, one of my secret passions was writing poetry. I didn't really share that a lot growing up. Because mm-hmm. um, it wasn't cool. You know, I didn't know too many cats uh, 
was getting ladies off of poetry early on. I found that to be different later yeah. when I got to college. But when Love Jones dropped after that, <laughs> or even before Love Jones or after Love Jones, it was uh-huh. like that that scene or that energy. By me being young at the time, I didn't know that existed, you know, anywhere in Detroit. Because all I saw everybody was doing was being hard. So. I just didn't really, you know, step out with the whole, I write from time to time because it was really therapeutic. Mm, absolutely. Um, so it was more about, you know, playing basketball and playing football, boxing here and there, running track here and there. And uh, basketball being my main sport, it was more about hooping. And when I wasn't hooping, like I said, another way to get respect coming up was just getting little scraps here and there, mm. little scuffles and showing people you can handle yourself. So that's where the respect came from. And, um... So I would say creating because that writing and poetry transition to writing song lyrics and writing hooks, you know, a mild attempt at trying to be a rapper and I get it up real quick. Okay. And, and then uh, getting into DJing a little early on, I think anybody who watched Juice thought they could DJ. Mm-hmm. So I was one of them kids too, begging my mama to give me some turntables and making my little tapes off the radio recording the top 88 on fm 98 stuff like that mm-hmm. and then when i had a chance to do radio when i went to school in california for my last two years of high school that just opened up the whole world of like the business of music and just my first glimpses okay this could be a real profession this could be a real career and um doing student radio two years out there in high school and then doing a year and a half in college when i came back this way go to school in Kalamazoo, um, I was really looking at radio. And then at the time, when life started to change personally, and I tried to intern when I came home one summer, um, in between my sophomore and junior year, I tried to intern with 105.9 Jams at the time, as well as uh, Channel 955. And I think I had got both, but neither was a paid opportunity. And money was still a major issue, because I'm pretty much self-funding my education. And I'm um, still, you know, helping out with the bills of the crib with my mom and my sister. So it was like, you want me to do promotions and run around the city for free? But not knowing that I was going to do music the way I was doing it now or even later on from there. Because at the time, it was just all radio. But the older me would have told the younger me, like, nah, go find another part-time gig to supplement the money. But still take the opportunities for the experience because it could pay off later. But I couldn't see that far down the line at the time. Right. So it was like my time in radio was really short-lived <clears throat> um, as a youth. And then I had a Hail Mary opportunity last summer. or No, the summer before last, before the pandemic, the summer of 19, where I worked at 107.5 in the promotions department for the summer, right before they got sold out to uh, Bell Broadcasting. And they shut down uh, Hot 107.5 in Detroit in terms of its original incarnation. It's still around. Um, it's back in the WGPR building now with a whole new formatting, but it's not what it once was uh, going into that moment. So I've always kind of basically flirted with radio here and there throughout my journey. But I would say just the creative side is where I'm most passionate, you know, writing music, you know, come working with artists in the studio, coming up with dope concepts, arranging records, picking beats, mm-hmm. you know, chipping in on the mixing and mastering coming up with graphics, designing websites, writing video treatments, just being creative. That's where that's where my passion really lies. That's good. Absolutely. So when kind of rewinding the tape, when we met, you was working with Visu. Correct. And we sat in the parking lot of 
the Spartan food stores on the corner of Beach Daily and Grand, Grand River. River. Yep, yep. And you played me Vizu's album, Name Me King. Yep, yep, yep. And I think a lot of it was produced by Cold Cash. Yep, Cold Cash Black. Shout out to Cold Cash Collection. Yep. He's, is he an Inkster? Is he from Inkster? No, he's from Detroit. He's from the East Side, actually, but he was operating out of uh, Redford at the time. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, he was right over there. I knew he was somewhere over in that, that West Side area when we talked. I just remember that. So, you get into the artists. You get into artists. You got Varsity Music Group popping off. Mm-hmm. You got ASIR Consulting. And you went through what you went through to build up and develop through that time. Mm-hmm. Now you have an entire, I don't want to say an entirely new group of artists who you've been working with. Mm-hmm. But what did you learn through from that Name Me King experience, the early days of Varsity Music Group, what did you learn during that time all the way up to now to put you in position to be successful with the artists that you're working with now? Um, well, I would say as far as successful artists go, Name Me King was actually like the tail end of that journey with Vizu. Mm-hmm. Uh, his defining moment, if you will, or Magnum Opus moment was a project called Focus that we had dropped two years earlier than that or a year and a half earlier mm-hmm. than that called Focus and that came out in the spring of 14 and that was his introduction to the city and the local market here that was really like my introduction and like my first real campaign and stamp through the city and um, a lot of support from some of the legends shout out Seven the General Soup MC shout out Miss Corona Big Hurt you know, Uncle P, Detroit Rap, Ivy Duncan, Mix Factory, Carol Dorsey, wow. Trail McNary, Hen House, uh, list goes on and on. So um, that was really where a lot of those relationships was formed. You know, a lot of the the grunt detail of navigating Detroit, trying to get on the road a little bit, you know, made it out to Memphis, made it out to St. Louis. Um, that's where all that kind of came from. And then with, by the time me and you link we was doing a ramp and we were starting to uh get ready for naming king me and him had like a year and a half apart in between the focus wave and the naming king wave because at the focus everybody kind of wanted to do their own thing and with naming king he was trying to like resurface and kind of get his feet back into the, the picture with detroit so you know we locked back in and at that time i was trying to show people what my origin was because we had just had um, a couple years of the Underground Hip Hop Awards and being that that was a bigger platform and more of a niche type of project which was championing the whole city it bolstered my respect and it bolstered my access and just notoriety but people only knew me from that because that was like how big it was and how much it impacted people didn't know my beginnings with Varsity Music Group Mm. and so to me it was like a return to form we did Name Me King just to show people like no this is where it started for me this is where I come from Um, so that's what that was about but to answer the question um, that experience taught me a lot you know what I'm saying just we was young man like my ex-partners that I was working with at the time the staff we had at the time the other artists that we had it was pretty much everybody putting their homeboy on it was a lot of homeboy business Mm -hmm. And uh, family and friend business going on at the time because we always excited, had a few dollars between us, and just wanted to do something. You know what I'm saying? So, and Vizu became, you know, the figurehead and the most successful out of the collective of artists that we had 
But we had other artists that was around at that time. He just the one that kind of stuck when it came to getting respect mm -hmm. out here and people really like showing love to what we was doing. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, but as far as the the artists I'm working with now, now shout out to P Dot Dot Gang, uh, Mason May Thirty Two Sixty Nine Chaz, uh, my little cuz J Boleen, BHB. Jews of Detroit, BHB Entertainment, slash No Name Gang. Um, these are all organic relationships. Mm -hmm. So it's not even like a traditional label artist type of deal. It's more so a partnership where I'm sharing my knowledge and sharing my experiences, sharing some of my resources to help further what they was already doing individually mm -hmm. and just kind of give them a bigger platform than what they had on their own by joining my resources with them to make a bigger platform for what they have going on. Okay. Um, and that approach was definitely premeditated because I really wasn't trying to do music anymore, not for any <laughs> negative reasons, um, but just, you know, personal challenges that I've had and going through, I've just really been in the space of wanting to focus on fatherhood and, and focus on self-love and self-care and just taking care of myself just as a human being. Yeah. But still having this passion, so... You know, the ideas of things that I've done with the collective of talent I have now, the music that we put out is stuff that I have been sitting on for a minute conceptually, but just hadn't had opportunity to get get that energy out. So mm -hmm. really, in the midst of the pandemic last year, with the releases that we put out, it was just trying to get that energy out and trying to kind of like clean my closet out so that I can say and rest my hat that, okay, if anybody want to dig up anything in relation to me and... ASAR, Varsity Music Group, Underground Hip Hop Awards, whatever, that this music, this bodies of work that I've touched and created mm -hmm. will be a time capsule of what my contribution was within the city and what I could do. Like, that was the whole behind-the-scenes thing with, with all of that. So, so what I'm going to do now is um, I'm going to ask you about the people who you work with. Okay. And... The first thing I want to ask you is is to give me one word that describe that describes that person or that act. When you consider the balance, you know, because everybody is bringing a different energy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Chai's first. Mm -hmm. What is the what's the one word you would use to describe Chai? Uh, my bro, Chai's um, deserving. That's the word that comes to mind. Like, mm -hmm. Chaz is somebody that um, got a, a, a average history in music, you know, grew up in the church, right? you know, participated in, in, in the music in the church as a youth, you know, did youth programs, you know what I'm saying? Always had a knack for rapping, you know, definitely been navigating the underground scene here in Detroit now for several years. Right. And just somebody that people know is talented, but for whatever reason, just never really came with them to give them a lot of real opportunities. I, I want to, before you go any further, when you say deserving, that means a lot to me because quiet as it is kept, to me, Chai's has a classic album already with Chop Suey. Okay. With Merch Music. Okay. That was, I want to say that was not 18. I think it came out 17, but it got distributed 18. Right. That was one of my favorite albums. 
Detroit, Detroit, Detroit or otherwise. And merch, no. Gotcha. Shout out to merch. Merch stay around the way from me now. Gotcha. And um, it was it was a the blend was perfect to me. Gotcha. So where is where is Chai's head? What is you know what I'm saying? He just did Club Shirley. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know what 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 do you think his next move is? Um, I think more music. That would be a perfect marriage between Chop Suey and Club Shirley. Because here's the thing, Chop Suey and uh, Chai's first project, if Chai's was here to t- say it, that was him, I guess, doing what he think people want for him mm-hmm. and kind of playing it safe. Because yeah. that's always the kind of vibe of the music that he's always made. But Club Shirley's, which was definitely premeditated going in, it's Chaz the human being So those okay. records That's on Club Shirley's The narrative that he's telling About his upbringing His relationship with his grandmother And dedicating right. it to her And just the different Trials and tribulations And stories he's telling with About family members And stuff like that Right That's Sean You know Because his real right. name is Arshan So that's Sean You know what I'm saying Like That's the human behind the name so I think a lot of the records that's on there for people that have heard it and as it continues to grow are seeing a whole nother version of Chaz and a whole nother type of energy that's not so much boom bap or not so much backpack you know he got records on there talking about relationships that failed with women he got records on there talking about being under the influence right heart so heavy you know what I'm saying he a cool dude but he still riding around with his strap like this is another side or different sides to him that he wasn't always necessarily showcasing right. prior. So I feel like this is that, for me, and working with him, that defining album of the person behind the music. Like, this is his real story. You really didn't get his story before now. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So I just think he's going to continue to make a blend of what you've been accustomed to before, yeah. as well as putting more personal narratives in the mix. And kind of continue to perfect that as he go go forward. Okay. What about No Name Gang? <clears throat> Those just my younger cousins, man. That was some family stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, a cousin in particular, shout out Jay Scabero. Mm-hmm. Um, we practically grew up together. We got like that big brother, little brother thing, you know what I'm saying, in our relationship. And um, unfortunately, due to life and family and, you know, me pursuing certain things in my life, we kind of... Grew apart, got distant, and um, it was a family funeral, unfortunately, a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. um, where he gave a great, great uh, spiel about my great aunt who passed, and it was kind of speaking on about how families should stick together and things like that, and it kind of touched me, and this was like the one thing that we hadn't done with each other, because he had been in music, I had been in music locally, but mm-hmm. we never came together to do anything, so... It was that energy that roped in my other three cousins along with them because they kind of all in the same generation. Mm-hmm. And I was just canning them, was like, let's just do a couple records, see how it go, put it out, see the response we got. And uh, last summer when we did it and the whole no-name game thing kind of came to the forefront, it was a rewarding moment for me because I felt like I was breaking the generational curse mm-hmm. by showing love and support to my family, you know, knowing they was trying to do music. And then it was a moment for them because they actually had somebody like me that was family that really believed in what they were doing and was willing to kind of, you know, mentor and, and give them some, some pointers on what to do and how to move with it. 
And um, pretty much, you know, it's in their hands. You know, however they want to drive it going forward, it's on them. Um, Jay Boleyn, who's the youngest of the bunch, I kind of took a little more of a focus on because he was probably the most passionate about it. And so he'll have some more records coming out this year on his own energy. Uh, he did just drop a, a single in the video at the top of the year called uh, 2020 Flow, which is out right now. You can go on his uh, social media and YouTube and type in J. Boleyn 2020 Flow. It'll pop up. But he definitely with that, the sound of today where music is. You right. know what I'm saying? He, he right in the mix of all of that. But that's pretty much how the no-name thing, no-name game thing come. But the one word for that was just family. You know what I'm saying? That's... That's what that was all about. I was just, you know, repairing family relationships, supporting right. family members, and just making sure on the family front things are straight. And then you got P Dot. Yep. P Dot put out five projects <laughs> in 2020. Am I correct? Correct. Problem Child, Class Act, mm-hmm. Cody High. Detroit's Bad Girl mm-hmm. and Coney Island. Did I say Coney Island? Yep, Coney Island mixtape with Charles. And I had the opportunity to master a lot of it. Correct. Well, almost everything. Everything that we yeah. just talked about, you pretty much mastered. And RW Consulting. Shout that out. RW Consulting. For your <laughs> mastering needs. Get at me. 24 hour turnover. Get at me. Price going up too. Brand check right quick. Because of P dot. Right. <laughs> RW consultant project plug in. All that. Mix and mastering. Get at me. Um, I remember being with you and Asar and her. Yep. When she, when Asar was mixing, Cody I wanna High. say it was no, nah, it was Cody. Yeah, it was Cody High. Because yeah, you showed me the artwork, this, yeah. that, and the third. And I didn't know at that time that it was gonna be five more. No, nobody knew. Um so the one word with P dot um, is I want to say deserving too, but I'm, I think I'm gonna go with arrive. And the reason why I say arrive because she's another individual that's been out here campaigning for a minute, right? And so my goal with what we were doing last year, and when me and her linked up a year and a half, two years ago, was to just showcase why she's dope. And so I wanted people to know that she was here, that she had something to say, and that she that that she you know can go with the best of them. Like no gender. Like I, I want her to be considered one of the top rappers in the city. Period. One of the best to ever do it in the city. Period. Like my aspirations for Dot is different than everybody else on the label because I feel like she just possessed that level of talent. Not saying that Chaz don't, not saying that no name game don't or anybody else I would work with. Right. But she already has that foundation because she done been around. So she started out when Street Lords was in power, Eastside Cheddar Boys was in power, Rock Bottom was in power. Right. And she was like the teenage version of herself then, kind of how like when you met Visa with me back in the day. Right. And she was running around as one of the only few women out there doing that, doing her thing at that time. That way too. Right, you feel what I'm saying? So, and then life happened with her. Right. You know, she took a break, came back. And when she came back, when we was kind of campaigning with the Underground Hip Hop Awards, she was one of the burgundy female talents on the scene at that time. Yeah, right. But this time around, she's doing it 100% herself. Right. 
Right. You know what I'm saying? So everything that she did from 2015 to 2019 and to date with, you know, my assistance and the team assistance, she been campaigning on her own energy. And it's just like, I feel like people always overlook her lyricism because she's a woman, overlooked her song-making ability because she's a woman. Right. And just overlooked her in general because she's not doing the traditional cheat code of rhyming about sex. Absolutely. And pushing sex. And she could do that too. She can, but but that's not her. That's not her only. That's, that's, that's not, not her only trick. Yeah. I remember. I never forget as long as I live when we was at Asar's spot, mm-hmm. and he mixed Home Invasion. Mm-hmm. I love that joint. <laughs> Still to this day. A lot of people love that joint. And um, with her and Visa. And no, that's Devil's Night with her and Visa. Home Invasion. She rapping by herself. Yeah, yeah. She she's telling the story. Yeah. Right now with Visa. My bad. So. Um, I remember a conversation we had after I mixed, after I mastered the album, and you asked me what I thought. Mm-hmm. And I said that I want to know more about who Dot is. Mm-hmm. And little did I know that she had four more projects to talk about who she was mm-hmm. after that first one. And I think that she really, through all of that, she was able to really make a clear picture of. Because, see, I like for artists to be whole people. You know, and I saw her do that mm-hmm. over that time. So what's next for, I mean, y'all y'all did videos out of town. Y'all did, you know, what's next for, I, I guess first, what's next for, for Dot specifically? Um, we kind of sharing the same interests as far as wanting to um, bow out gracefully because she got her own reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be some more music that'll come out this year. But for her, it's all about the opportunity. So if somebody comes with a situation, you know, major label situation or not, of course she gonna hear it out because she a business woman. But as far as the the rat race or what goes on here locally in the city and the hamster wheel that yeah. goes on here in the city, you know, she ready to do something different. She Amen. feel like she's been doing that for a minute. So yeah. she heavy into her acting bag right now. She heavy into uh, the modeling bag, mm-hmm. you know, some spreads will be coming soon. She definitely growing her uh, cosmetology business with the braiding yeah. and really making that a staple locally. That's what she do by trade to finance her side of things. So she just got some other interests that she want to get the same energy to like she has with music. Okay. You know what I'm saying? But it'll definitely be <clears throat> some music that'll come out this year just to keep the energy there. But as far as the way we was campaigning in 2020, you know, that, a lot of that just came out of boredom and yeah. being in the crib. Yeah. There's only so much Netflix and Hulu. Yeah. Let's so go only, to the studio only, only, and only drop. so much uh, physical, you know, between right. me and her. You know if what you I'm rap, If you rap, Kids, that's, all if of you that. rap, that's what you do. You rap and you want to rap. So I feel you. Yeah. So let's, let's change gears. The albums that people pick mm-hmm. when they come in here always have the thing, the albums that touch people's lives. And the reason I focus on albums mm-hmm. is because, again, it's important that we recognize that people are whole people. It's impossible for one person to be one way the, the, the whole time. And I think albums are able to depict the complexity of a person or the complexity of a situation. You know what I'm saying? So the fact that you pick Ready to Die, mm-hmm. 
to come and talk today about. Gotcha. Answer this question. If it wasn't for, and, and we're talking about the, the big scope now. We're talking about the entire scope of music and black culture. Because mm-hmm. I think hip-hop and black culture are braided, obviously. I also think that hip-hop is commentary about the state of African Americans at a given time. Or it's a statement about it. So... If it wasn't for ready, ready, fill in this, finish this sentence. Gotcha. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for ready to die, blank. Uh, I probably will be dealing with mental health issues. And I know that's a big, broad statement to say. But it is, and I, I'm sure you're gonna we we gonna get into it. <laughs> September 13th, 1994. Facts. Where was you at? I was eight years old in Detroit, Michigan. But you didn't hear it at eight years old, am I correct? No. I heard it at 21 years old, the fall of 2004 at Kalamazoo College. Take me back to that. Okay. So, we talked about the radio thing earlier, so... Just speaking on my journey in fandom with this thing we call hip-hop, um, my first hip-hop record I ever heard was DJ Quick, Born and Raised in Compton. That's 91. Okay. Keyword heard. 91 is one of the top five years in the history of rap. That's a whole <laughs> nother conversation that you probably going to see some... Yeah. I got you. I say that all the time. Go ahead. But like bro. I said, I heard the record. Right. I had no idea what Quick was rapping about. Didn't know nothing about Compton. Nothing about the narrative, none of that. But that's what introduced me to the culture. Now, the other setting that kind of encompasses that is that my sister's father, who I will go as far as to say is my stepfather, and I affectionately call him Pop because he was in and out and around and my mom dated off and on, Mm -hmm. was a notorious West Coast hip-hop head. So everything from NWA, DOC, All of Death Row, Pop, E-42 short here and there and a little bit of Scarface and the Ghetto Boys that's all that was played in my household and in the whip as far as hip hop music is concerned Mm -hmm. so I grew up with a West Coast bias still not fully understanding the music remembering a couple lines here and there was single on the hooks like most children but that was the setting of the music that was played in my household and that I was involved in so fast forward, when I get the opportunity to go away to school to California in high school and start doing radio, I furthered that affinity for West Coast music because I'm in California. I went to school in Pebble Beach um, in the Monterey Peninsula. And for my Californians, that's Central California for outside people. Right. It's closer to Northern California, probably like two and a half hours, three hours from the Bay Area. Um, so while out there, my West Coast love developed but at that same time, no plug intended, BearShare, LimeWire, Kazak, all them downloading sites. Right, right, right. Allowed me to go back and kind of become more of a student and get the stuff that I was missing. Swimming through it, though. And make During the days. <laughs> and kind of, you, know. uh, you know, make my little burnt CD mixtapes. Right. And then becoming somewhat of a purist 
and I would say doing some novice digging via the internet, I then started going to the local mom and pop store out there and actually started buying used music, new music that was, that was coming out and kind of building my musical library. Uh, didn't go as far as to digging in the vinyl. So for my super peers, I ain't get that pure with it. Mm-hmm. I was definitely keeping his CDs and MP3s at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I, a couple of years later, when I came back this way to Michigan to go to school in Kalamazoo, um, life was setting in. I had a baby on the way. Uh, black kid, urban environment, all white prep school at Kalamazoo College. Very privileged, super high academia. Um, mom going through mental health issues back here in Detroit to an extent being uh, hospitalized, admitted in and out of psych wards to some degree homeless you know, family just in complete disarray so when I actually had the time to dig into Ready to Die at that moment in time the things of what he was talking about with his mom expecting Tiana, you know, wanting to give her a better life than what he was doing mm-hmm. the hustling, you know, I had did some things around that time that I'm not proud of during my college days um, to make ends meet. I just felt like I was living what he was rapping about. You know what mm. I'm saying? So that's where the love affair with Biggie came from. That's where it started. And at that point in time, that's when I decided, you know, hands down for me, top five that are alive. He the best to ever do it. That's my guy. That's where, that's where that came from. Biggie is the equivalent of let's we always talk about the connection between basketball and hip hop, right? right? Biggie, if Biggie was a basketball player, the main the main argument against Biggie being top five is because he only released two albums in his lifetime. Let's see, I turn that on his head though. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna hear you out, but I'm no, I'm saying that that is. I don't think there's anybody that denies the game that he was playing on the mic Mm -hmm. and the songs that he was creating. Mm -hmm. People's main argument against him being top five. And and mind you, that's not what this is about. Like, you know what I'm saying? I I believe that comparison is the thief of joy. If you constantly saying who top five is that and the third, you can't really appreciate what people doing because you're always comparing shit. So he's the equivalent of somebody coming into the league and hitting 40 a night for four years and then retiring or then leaving the game. Gotcha. So for me, I'm one of those people that kind of say, "Mm, Oh man, I need Biggie (laughs) is up there. I got you, but I can't put him at the top. I got you. Because I like to be able to see, again, just like we talked about with PDOT, I like to see a bushel of your work and then be able to make choices about whether or not you are here. So let's 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 talk your bushel theory. I'm gonna challenge that. Okay. In hip hop, if we talking classic albums, if we talking the cream of the crop MCs. Most MCs in the 80s era, in the early 90s era, mm-hmm. were being judged for their classic status off of one project and or one project that spawned a bunch of hit records that impacted culture. Okay. 
because very few of those artists, as their career went on, did they rekindle that same energy right. they had in them debut albums right. and their, quote, their conceived magnum opus album. Right. So with Big, the reason why I say all of the reasons that people may want to detract from him actually argues for him is that Big's success was encapsulated from 94 to his demise untimely in March of 97. Right. We really can't count 97 because he only lived two months and a couple weeks yeah, right. of 97. Right. He was there all of 94. He was there all of 95. He was there all of 96. So his career is really only three years. Right. Okay. And in those three years of a career, he only had one album that he was riding a wave on, which was Ready to Die. Right. So the features that he did, the impact that he had, being Kristen the King in New York, that was all off of one album. Because he did not live to see the success. That's true. A life after death. That's true. Then, if you want to dig deeper on some metaphysical stuff, when he created Ready to Die, you're talking about a 20 to 21-year-old kid. Right. That's the perspective that he was rhyming from. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He wasn't as seasoned as Chuck D was. He wasn't as seasoned... That's true. As KRS and Rakim was. Facts. He wasn't as seasoned as Jay was on Reasonable Doubt. The closest thing that you can hold him accountable to as far as youth and having that level of skill is Nas. Right. You feel me? But Nas, if we keeping it a buck, Illmatic was a regional success. Illmatic wasn't a wide scale, like national crossover success at the time it came out. It became that later. But at the time it came out, it was just to the tri area. Right. He big not only got New York at the forefront at the time that Death Row was campaigning heavy, but big reached beyond the East Coast. Juicy went everywhere. Right. Big Papa went everywhere. From a commercial standpoint. That's what I'm saying. It went right, it right, went right, everywhere. Right. And Could those they- those records brought people into listening. To those easy mobi cuts that's on ready to die, listening to the DJ Premier unbelievable cut. Could there could there have been a ready to die without Illmatic? Absolutely, I agree. Because it's two different I narratives. You I get agree. The, you getting the narrative of, as Big would say, a ordinary everyday cat from Brooklyn, right? And with Illmatic, you getting the perspective of a cat from Queens. And if you from New York or even have a love for the city and the culture of the city, them drastically two different major boroughs and two different places right. and two different mindsets on and they, what's going on at that time. And they play two different coins of the, uh, of a similar environment, too, right. in my opinion. And I would even argue with Nas, we didn't hear the King of New York title. We, we heard the King of New York title with right. Big. We right. didn't hear that title with Nas. We didn't right. hear that title... With the forefathers that came before Nas. Right. We right. first heard the King of New York title and that becoming a thing with Big. With, with Big. And I don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not taking anything away from Big whatsoever. He's in that conversation just based on what you're talking about. Don't get it twisted. Right. But that's what I'm saying. To me, that's what shows his greatness because it's like right. he did it at a young age. Off one project. Off one project. His whole career was pretty much standing so, on one project. Like that's that to me that's what makes him great because if he was able to amass that level of support from people who didn't even know him from one project 
for people wanting to know what was coming next. Right. That's greatness, bro. And then he didn't. I would I wouldn't even say that he didn't disappoint with life after death. He, in my opinion, surpassed what he did technically on Ready to Die for a lot of reasons, which we're gonna talk about. Yeah. But before we go any further, let's talk about the cover. Gotcha. Commonly regarded as one of the greatest hip hop album covers of all time. One of the most bit album covers. And it was beef over this cover. Yeah, because uh, he was considered to be biting somebody. He was considered to be biting Nas. Yep. By Wu. Ghostface. Sharkbiters. Yep. On the purple tape. Yep. Which we was also supposed to talk about. We was, but you switched up. But that's all good. This is more personal. That just gave me a reason to have you back, too. Um, But looking at the cover, the visual of the cover, um, the things that came to mind for me was the fact that you are born, unless you're a twin Mm -hmm. or a multiple, you're born in isolation, you die in isolation. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting in this infinite light. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of the irony of here you have the picture of innocence, the picture of joy, curiosity, you know, uh, eyes wide open about what life could be, mm-hmm. but he ready to die. Mm-hmm. And that irony is important to understand when you think about his positioning as being a black man in America. Because we all come into the world the same way. That's the one thing that, that's one of the things that unite us, is that we all, all of us human beings come into the world the same way. And we all go out the same way. We come in by ourselves, we go out by ourselves. And then when you consider the intro of the album, and all of this, these, this trauma he's encountering from being born, which is a traumatic experience that you don't remember, truthfully, to dealing with what was going on with his parents, seeing that, he was soaking that up as a kid. You know what I'm saying? To being on a train robbing cats, that behavior is born out of trauma. To being incarcerated, that's born out of trauma. And still, being able to come back and do things done change where his perspective his perspective is even though shit is fucked up it wasn't as fucked up yesterday so it's another example of how hip-hop is connected is kind of is constantly bridging time and that's something that's real interesting to me especially when you consider how it begins and how it ends because it ends with suicidal thoughts so you got this kid on this cover, born into trauma, mm-hmm. and then decides to kill themselves mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. It wasn't anything else that killed them. It wasn't the trauma and the things that he endured. He killed himself. Yeah, but I would argue he did it because of the trauma. It was the overwhelmingness of surviving, trying to survive. It absolutely was. <laughs> it, he was. So... I thought about at the end of the intro when he talked about, I got big plans. I got big plans. And how being incarceration changes people. Mm -hmm. We know people that's been locked up. Mm -hmm. And there is, there, we know people who 
have been locked up who have who will do anything to stop from getting locked up again and feel as though there's a mortality that comes with being locked up. Yeah, most. It's some people who, who don't mind going Some back. Some don't. That's, you, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Don't get me wrong. But he's telling that. He's telling the first narrative. Right. I got big plans. Like, I know I've had time to sit on what I, what I need to do, what I want to do. Right. And in the process of him recording with Uptown first, because you, you know he was with Uptown first. Mm-hmm. And that's why the album sounds like two different albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, Give Me the Loot, Ready to Die, mm-hmm. Friend of Mine. Mm-hmm. Those were out. Those were songs that was recorded with Uptown. And then when Puffy got fired from Uptown mm-hmm. and started Bad Boy, he had to purchase the masters mm-hmm. to get those songs to be able to put on the project. Because Big Papa, I want to say Juicy was from the beginning. Most of the second half of the album was created brand new. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. You could tell the inflection in his voice. He sounds he sounds older, mm-hmm. almost. Um, and so, by kind of dealing with being, it, it was almost like he was in one place and he was incarcerated. And when he came out, according to what the narrative I've heard is, he was intent on doing whatever Puffy said to do what had to be done to blow. Because originally, when he first got approached about doing Juicy, according to Mr. He C, he, he wasn't feeling that. He ain't want to do it. Yeah, he thought he was selling out. And Mr. C was like, "You need to do whatever Puffy tell you to do." Yeah. So I also believe, while we there, I also believe that this album was a bit of a coronation for Puffy too. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just about Big. This was. I mean, Puffy was responsible for some huge R&B success in the early 90s with Andre Harrell. Mm-hmm. But this kind of planet, Craig Mack was cool. Flavor in Your Ear was big. Mm-hmm. Project Funk the World, Craig Mack first album was big. But this kind of cemented yeah. Puff. This, this started the bad boy legacy. And I would also dare to argue that the reason that this album was, I mean, other than obviously... Biggie's genius level songwriting, if you want to call it songwriting, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because he wasn't really writing, so, mm-hmm. so to speak. I think that one of the reasons that this album reached the level of success that you just talked about was because of what was happening on the West Coast and in the South mm-hmm. at the time when it came out. Mm-hmm. Because if you notice, songs like Things Done Change, they're scratching Dre. Things mm-hmm. Done Changed on this side. Remember they used to thump? Scratching uh, Scarface. He talk, he talk about on uh, Life After Death, I want to rhyme and sell albums like Snoop. He was heavily influenced by what was going on. Heavily influenced. And so I'm all about this juxtaposition. Like, if if you sit this here and this is what it is, and then you sit the opposite thing there, mm-hmm. it does something to the human mind. Mm-hmm. And so for West Coast to be exploding mm-hmm. when this album came out, I wonder what was what had just came out around this time. Was it Murder Was the Case? Yeah, Murder Was the Case soundtrack was out. Doggy Style was Doggy cracking. Style was already out. There. It was out, but it was it was huge. And it's all about timing. Mm-hmm. So when Ready to Die came out, it had those connections to history. It was kind of a response to West Coast dominance, and it did something for East Coast hip hop. 
it did something for New York hip hop. Um, a couple of interesting things. Everyday Struggle was produced by Digger. Mm-hmm. Digger was a teacher. Okay. And Digger has written books about how to sell your beats and this, that, and third. He's still a teacher, I believe, in, in uh, he's still a teacher in New York City. Um, as far as the production, um, actually, if you listen to the old album, it sounds different than the remasters because they had to remove some samples mm-hmm. from the remasters due to litigation. Mm-hmm. And they tried to argue in court about fair use. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm still trying to understand fair use. I mean, fair use, in my understanding, is basically like pretty much if, if, if what you sampled and the artists who sampled it in the campaign for what they're doing with the music as of current, if it's not overshadowing the original financially or commercially, they'll let you live with the fair use. Right. But if they feel like your version is exploding or campaigning in a way where people won't even remember the original or you making a considerable bag off of it, then yeah, you got to pay that tag. They coming after you. So I think with the success of Ready to Die, I think the the, the lawsuits came later. They didn't come like right off the cuff. Mm -hmm. Those lawsuits came after Ready to Die had already lived out there. And they kind of saw the the money, the money kind of hit because it costs money to go to court. Yeah, it do. So you're not gonna send nobody a cease and desist or hit nobody with a suit if you don't think you can get no money out that tree. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one thing that my man DJ Iran talked about talks about on an old video. Um, shout out to DJ Iran, Gadget, DMV, Digital Hustle Films. Kev Brown, all the low-budget cats, Roddy Rod, Kev, you know, all of them. He says, and he used to intern for Uptown. Okay. One of the things that he says is, Puffy Puffy, in those days seemed to be uh, obsessed with making a mixtape type feel, like a Ron G tape, with people rapping over R&B beats and R&B singers rapping over, I mean, singing over rap beats. And so that's how you get songs like Juicy. Mm-hmm. That's how you get songs that, that have extreme fidelity to the original material. Mm-hmm. Even when you go back and you look at Jodeci, them old Jodeci remixes, that was a little bit before your time. But I remember the, the old, breakdown. Yeah, them old Jodeci remixes. Because that same breakdown on Come and Talk to Me is the same breakdown that's in real love. Absolutely. So <clears throat> that's, that's kind of what his whole theory is. And that's one of the things that helped Puffy's records be so palatable to be to so many people. Like when you talked about um, Juicy and Big Papa, um, and that's evident on here. And that came that became like a trademark. But he also built a real successful team of producers. Obviously, yeah. Uh, I mean, he wasn't the first and, to do. I mean, we being keeping the book. James Brown whole catalog and George Clinton whole catalog for the foundation of hip hop. All, all of that was pretty much sampled without being cleared and and put out, but the forefathers of rap didn't make the level of commercial success off of that music True. being sampled the way the 90s era did. True. And so they were able to get away, whether they claim fair use or not, yeah. with putting that music out without being beat over the head the way the 90s rappers had to go through it, and True. eventually the 2000 rappers had to go through it. True. Because hip hop is not a billion dollar business at that point. 
but but in the same token, I look at sampling a little bit differently. I think that the affinity for sampling overall is because it's kind of built into the fabric of what hip hop grew out of. Hip hop and technology are linked. So when hip hop started and it was just turntables and people was rapping over break beats, I don't think that ethic completely died. You know what I'm saying? It never could. It never could completely die. Now litigation caught up to it right. during the 90s you know what i'm saying and right. i would i would be curious to find out how much he had to pay him to me to for juicy you know right. what i'm saying how much that kind of clearance cost so but we still live by those rules i mean people we do. That, people that's independent acts that don't have a label budget you know that's part of the quote fake it till you make it mantra right you know it's a risk with sampling because to be honest it costs the acts for permission to use a sample right you know, it costs to get a record cleared after you ask for permission to use the sample. Because first you ask for permission to then go create the record. Then you have to take a record back to get it cleared for commercial use. Yeah. With them saying they're okay with what you did with the sample. Yeah. Then, in both of those scenarios, every time you contact them, you have to pay them for their opinion because they control the license to... The original. And sometimes that license may not be with the original artist. It may be with X publishing company or X and Y label and publishing company. So you all across the horn right. trying to figure out this one sample that you might only use 10 seconds of, if that or less. You know what I'm saying? So just being honest, people still live by those rules because the goal is to bring awareness to what you're doing. The goal is to right. make a name. And... Sampling is just a, just the age old cheat code. If you can give yeah. somebody something familiar but put your twist on it, you know it's a cheat code right. to immediate acceptability of the music that you're making. So the question becomes: What is the legacy for Ready to Die? And I think it's a classic album, but you don't. So tell me. Tell no, me. it's not. That I don't think it's a classic album. You were saying uh, Big can arguably be one of the best rappers, so thus Ready to Die could be considered one of the best. Or the best hip hop album I said I disagree And the reason why I said that Is because Like I said Preparing to do the interview with you And Me understanding that a part of this uh, Structure of this interview Was part biographical Ready to Die is more of a biographical Fandom In terms of my relationship to the album And vice versa The album to me then my original selection in the purple tape. The purple tape was just me being a fan of hip hop without putting my myself in any kind of way in relation to that project. You know, that's just my go-to in terms of if I want to jump back and go through time, the purple tape will always take me to that special place. So when I think about great hip hop albums, I think about that album. Supreme clientele, reasonable to doubt. Obviously, the illmatics of the world. Um, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. America's most wanted. I think of like albums like that because they hold that pedigree as more of art than so much art imitating life in me. Sometimes how I look at it. But when we talk about ready to die, it's like that's closer to my life, so it hit different. Then those albums hit Because it's not just Entertainment for me It's not just a collection Of songs Right 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 Yeah absolutely Like I, I, I was living You know what I'm saying You have with, a different connection Right what dude was talking about So Absolutely It just hit different Alright So We want everybody to go back Listen to Ready to Die this week 
engage in conversation about it. I'll be trying to engage in conversation about it. Um, look out for me on social media. I'll be asking questions about what, what you think about it. And let's talk about it. These are historical documents. Like you just talked about, this is a primary source of information. It's an account of a person's life. Mm-hmm. And um, But we can look at it through the lens of it being representative of the challenges that we that many of us face. So make sure that you like, share, and subscribe wherever you at, whether you're on a streaming platform, whether you're on YouTube, no matter where you are. Um, we want to thank our sponsors one more time. Uh, Leon Speakers, Grove Studios, Project Plugin, Mind State Marketing. Also want to give a shout out to edigging.com um, where you can find samples to chop. Hopefully, hopefully you won't run into no no issues like we talked about a few minutes ago. Um, and until next time, this is Rob Wallace signing off. Support the artists and the artisans around you, because if the music stops, everything else does. Thank you, Brandon, for coming to kick it with us. You got to do our plug too. Absolutely, give your plug. <laughs> uh, follow me on social media at Grind Life three one three on IG and Twitter. That's G R. I-N-D-L-I-F-E, one word, Ground Life 313. Uh, Brandon Scarborough, Facebook and LinkedIn, real name, no gimmicks. Borrowed that from my homie, O Trice. Um, www.westillrise.org for ASR Consulting um, online. Um, shout out to Camp, P-Dot, Chaz, J. Boleen. Music on all streaming platforms. You type in one of their names in, you will get the projects that were mentioned in the interview tonight. And then um, mental health is a real thing, y'all. I know I uh, spoke on that earlier when uh, homie Rod was asking me what, you know, ready to die meant to me in, in kind of a phrase. And the reason why I said, you know, I probably would have had more struggles with that is because this album let me know that it is a real thing in 2004. And even though he was speaking from a perspective in 94, but mm-hmm. also let me know that I wasn't alone. So that's important. When you have thoughts that can be deemed as suicidal thoughts when you battle with anxiety, when you battle depression, and just kind of dealing with that overwhelmingness of life as a young man, it's just good to know that you're not the only one in that space. So it kind of helped pull me out of that space at that time and just feeling overwhelmed with the world. So, you know, mental health is not something to shy about. So if you know somebody that's in need, you know, definitely get them connected with resources, you know, pray for one another, be there for one another, Nothing nothing is wrong and all things can be solved through communication and conversation. So Praise God. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Brandon, for kicking it with us. No doubt. All right. Everybody, we'll see you next week. Peace.